You're listening to the Bonfire Podcast, fanning the flames of the gospel to the ends of the world. Come on, let's dive into the Word. Well, welcome into the Bonfire Podcast, everyone. We are glad that you're joining us this week for another episode. If you are listening and have not done so already, we would encourage you to subscribe and download our episodes, and you can do that by going to any of the podcast applications. Uh, So that would be like the Google Play. Um, It would be Apple Podcast, Spotify, and uh, go to those applications there on your phone. You can find Bonefire Podcast by typing in Bonefire, two words, and uh, hitting the subscribe button. When you hit that subscribe button, that will allow those episodes to download directly to your device. You'll also get a notification each week when we release our new content. And so it'll be with you on your phone. That way, as you're out and about, whether you're running for exercise or maybe just driving uh, the kids to school in your car, that you can listen to us as you are on the go. So please download and subscribe um, on those episodes. We'd also like for you to follow us on Facebook. Uh, It's a great place for you to go and to uh, see some more information about the ministry that we're doing here. Sometimes we have different things on the Facebook page um, that you're able to follow along with. Uh, Typically, that's where we announce new series. Um, so you can see what's coming up ahead in the future. We post all the episodes there, and so it's a great place if you want to make a comment or leave a comment about an episode, ask a question, uh, that's a great place to do that um, as well. And so um, you can also share, uh, share with a friend. So you can take one of those videos from the Facebook page, share that specifically with one friend, or you can share it with all your friends. So we encourage you guys to do that. And then lastly, um, as always, we'd love for you to just reach out to us. You can send us an email, bonefireministries at gmail.com. I love to hear who our listeners are, where you're listening from. Uh, so f- drop us a quick note in the in the email, and uh, we'll read those. Um, I won't read the emails, but we'll at least give you a shout out uh, here on one of our podcasts coming up. So uh, just a couple of housekeeping items here as we get started. Uh, Dad, we're right in the middle of Holy Week, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and in fact, we're recording this message on Thursday, and uh, Thursday and Easter is just a couple days away. Resurrection Sunday, just a couple days away, about four, well, four days away now. And, uh, you know, the Thursday before Easter is called Maundy Thursday, and it is a day where we reflect on the last hours that Jesus spent with his disciples prior to being crucified. And on this Monday, Thursday, Jesus met with his disciples uh, to celebrate the Passover. And during this celebration, uh, they joined together and they had a meal. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the meal that we refer to commonly as the Last Supper. Right. And that's where we, we base our Last Supper or Lord's Supper or communion on yeah. is, is that uh, time. But Jesus did something else um, at that Last Supper. He actually got down and he washed his disciples' feet. And he, he washed each of their feet. And then he stated this. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's John thirteen thirty four. You know, Dad, the term Monday, I was looking at that. I, I didn't really know what that meant. Um, until uh, th- th- this this morning, actually, I was looking over and I was like, "What exactly does that word mean?" And so I found that "mandi" is is an abbreviated of the Latin word that means command, mm-hmm. right? And so um, Jesus gave us a new command. He said it was a brand new command, and that was to love one another, uh, but not just any love would do. No, He wanted us to love the way that He loved. Mm-hmm. the way he loved each other. And that was the right. way his disciples were going to be known. And that's the way you and I are still supposed to live. We're supposed to live with love for one another. Right. And that's how people can tell that we are, are Christians that's uh, because right. of the way that we love. You know, Dad, I can't help but think that um, 
our world would be a different place if we actually all followed that command. That's right. If everybody did, right? Can That's you imagine right. how many problems would be solved in our world today if everyone just loved the way that Jesus loved? Ab- absolutely. I would dare say we wouldn't even recognize the world that we live in We would if that was the case. That's right. Jesus raised the definition of what it means to love. He put it at a, a new level, a higher standard. Everything he did was based um, out of his love for us. He loved, even loved his enemies, and his love continued all the way to the cross. Now, when we met with you last time, our last episode, we started a two-part episode focusing in on the, on the sayings of Jesus on the cross. And in that first uh, part one video, we looked at the first three sayings from Jesus, and those sayings really focused in on, on love. I think that would be the overarching theme of those uh, three statements. We saw that uh, he had love for his enemies uh, the very ones who were crucifying him, and really all of mankind when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Mm-hmm. We saw his love for the repentant thief who was crucified beside him when he said, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And then we saw his love for his earthly mother when he looked and he said, Woman, behold your son. And of course, we covered last time that was him talking to his mom, and he was referring to John, who was standing beside him. That's he then right. said, John, this is your mom. That's right. Uh, the person that you'll need to take care of going mm-hmm. forward. So those three statements, they, those were love. Mm-hmm. Even in the midst of the agony that Jesus was was facing there on the cross, he continued to pour out his love on the cross. And on this episode, we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to continue on. Again, there's seven total sayings. We covered three last time. We're going to continue on with the other four for this episode. And so we're going to pick up, again, just right where we left off. And, Dad, I think you've got the first one, saying number four. Could you share saying number four from the cross? That's right. Jesus said from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus, when we hear those words, we think about how lonely It was for Jesus on the cross. One of the songs that I remember from the Beatles uh, back in the 60s was named Eleanor Rigby. And the chorus goes like this. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Now, the world is full of lonely people. Cries of loneliness can be heard in the convalescent homes among the sighs and shuffling of feet. They can be heard in the prisons among the moans of shame and the calls of mercy. They can be heard in affluent neighborhoods and in the halls of our high schools, coming from the popular as well as the unpopular, from the top to bottom, from the failures to the famous, from the poor to the rich, from the married to the single. The cries of loneliness can be heard. Some out there listening to this podcast may be fooling everybody. By looking at you, nobody knows that you're lonely. On the outside, you're packaged neatly. Your smile is quick. Your job is stable. Your calendar is full and your talk is impressive. But even though everyone else is fooled, you can't fool yourself. For when you look in the mirror, you see what nobody else sees, someone who is lonely. Well, whereas some try to hide their loneliness, others are so obviously lonely, they don't even try to hide their loneliness anymore. I wonder if I'm striking a chord out there. Are you lonely? Can you be in a crowd and still feel all alone? If so, then I've got an important message to you. The most gut-wrenching cry of loneliness in history came not from a prisoner, a widow, or a patient. 
It came from a hill, from a cross, from a Messiah who screamed out, My God, my God, why did you forsake me or abandon me? Never have words carried so much hurt. Never has one being been so lonely and felt so isolated and cut off. The loneliness felt on the cross was similar to what maybe some are experiencing now or have experienced. But the loneliness Jesus experienced while on the cross was even greater. His loneliness came as a result of God the Father turning his back to him. A loneliness that's only been felt by himself and by those that are in hell. Now, we're continuing this series on the last sayings of Jesus on the cross and Like Matt said, we're going to look at this fourth saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus made this statement at the ninth hour, which in the way the Jews kept time would be three o'clock in the afternoon. As a matter of fact, the last four statements of Jesus, we believe, were made pretty close together in succession. Now, this means that from 12 noon until 3 o'clock, Jesus was silent. He didn't speak a word. During this time of silence, the scene of the crucifixion was shrouded in darkness. It was during this time the combined sin of the whole world was placed on Jesus. He became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul said, God made him, meaning Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think of it. All the iniquity, all the evil, all the crime and hatred of the world, all of it was laid upon Jesus. It was while Jesus was made sin for us that God the Father turned away from him. And this is what led Jesus to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? During this time, Jesus and the Father were separated for the first time. Now, we should not think that the Father and the Son became separated in their being or essence. In other words, when the Father forsook the Son, the Trinity did not divide in two. This was a break in fellowship, not a breach of the fundamental unity of the Father and the Son. Up to this time, Jesus and the Father had been together. Now they're separated as Jesus, filling in as our substitute, pays the penalty for our sins. Folks, how agonizing it must have been for Jesus during those three hours who before then had never been separated from the Father. Folks, the loneliness he must have felt. He went through that period of separation from the Father to satisfy the holy demands of the law of God so that you and me, once we come to him for salvation, would never have to experience that separation. Never, ever have to experience it. Now, there are several things that I want to share with you about this scene on the cross, about this time when he said that. The, we're going to look at the cloak of darkness that surrounded the Savior, the cry of loneliness that came from him, and then the confusion of those that heard him. First of all, the cloak of darkness that surrounded the cross. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. According to this verse, darkness covered the land for three hours while Jesus was on the cross. This darkness was not the result of an eclipse because the crucifixion of Christ was held at a time of the Passover 
when the moon was full, making a total eclipse impossible. The darkness that cloaked the land that day was of supernatural origin. Through darkness, God was saying something to the people. The Jewish priests and the people that day should have been reminded of the time when their ancestors were in in Egyptian bondage. To free the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, you remember God sent ten plagues on the Egyptians. The ninth plague was a plague of darkness. Now, over in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23, it talks about it. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Now, according to this, darkness covered the Egyptians for three days. This correlates to the three hours it was dark at the cross. According to verse 23, it was so dark in Egypt during those three days that the people could not see one another. During those three hours that it was dark when Jesus was on the cross, the people who stood there could not see the Savior as he suffered in agony. Following the plague of darkness in Egypt, God sent the tenth and final plague on the Egyptians, the death of the firstborn. As with what happened in Egypt, the darkness at Calvary was an announcement that God's firstborn and beloved son, the Lamb of God, was giving his life for the sins of the world. So this darkness at the cross should have set the minds of the people and priests to the time of the Passover. And it was also a picture of spiritual darkness. The Bible says God is light and in him there is no darkness. The darkness over the cross then speaks to the fact that Jesus for three hours was separated from the Father, having become sin for us. And third, the darkness at the cross is reminiscent of the darkness of hell. Hell is described as a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, while on the cross, experienced the separation and suffering that a sinner that goes to hell experiences. Matt, I had an experience many years ago. You were just a boy. Uh, I was pastoring in North Carolina, and one of my friends that went out on visitation with me quite frequently, we went out on visitation one night. We came up to a mobile home that had a porch built on the front. There were quite a few people on that porch. And so when I got out, I guess I gave the look of a preacher. And so all of those people on that porch, they fled. They ran into the the mobile home itself, a one brave guy. I walked up there on the the porch, me and my friend, and we sat down beside that guy, and we started sharing with him about Jesus. And the guy said, you know, uh, I died. And he told me it hadn't been recently that he had uh, an experience where he died. And of course, obviously, he was alive. He came back to life. He was resuscitated. And so I said, so what happened when you died? And he looked at me, and he said, I I was in a place of darkness. Mm. Now, that's what he told me. And I told him, I said, man, you were in hell. Because hell is a place of darkness. And so I I urged him to accept Christ. And it was sad that uh, he didn't accept the Lord that day. A man that went into outer darkness. It's unbelievable. Well, while on the cross, Jesus experienced hell for you and me so that we might not have to. If anybody wants to know what hell is like, just look at Jesus on the cross and you'll get a picture of it. When you combine darkness and thirst, suffering and isolation you have 
hell. The darkness over the land should have put the people in mind of the three days of darkness before the Passover and pointed to the fact that Jesus was God's Passover lamb. It speaks of the spiritual darkness that those who are lost in their sins are now in and the ultimate separation that a lost sinner will one day experience in hell, which is a place of outer darkness. Well, then now we hear the cry of loneliness. Jesus said, we look over here in Mark 34. I read it a while ago. He said with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabathani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was actually saying, God, why have you abandoned me? And you know, it's interesting, Matt. First, he referred to God as God instead of Father. Up to this point, when he cried this out, he had always referred to God by the loving term Father. But when he cries this out, he does not bear the relationship of a son to his Father. Instead, he bore the relationship of a lost sinner to his God. Those that reject Jesus will cry out the same thing when they're rolling over and over in the flames of hell. The second thing I want you to notice about what Jesus said was that he asked the Father, Why? There's no other place in the Bible where Jesus asked his Father in heaven why. The whole layman is a quote from Psalm 22.7. Some say Jesus, being delirious with pain, just quoted the scripture because he knew it and it came to his mind during his suffering. <laughs> I believe different. I know he knew the scripture, but I think in asking why, Jesus was delving deeply into the very issue of his being forsaken. He was forsaken on the cross and the Word of God answers this question as to why in Psalm 22, 3, it says, Because thou art holy. Habakkuk 1, 13 says of God that, is, that he is of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. It was because the Savior was bearing our sin that the thrice holy God would not look at him. Well, the last thing we see is the confusion. After he said that, Verse 35, 36 says, some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. I guess the, the words as they were uh, in the original language sounded like he was calling for Elijah. And then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah. You see, everybody thought that Elijah was the going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's predicted to do that. And so they're saying in jest, let's see if this forerunner will come to take his Messiah down. And so they were all confused. Well, that's the fourth saying on the cross right there. Yeah. The fifth saying on the cross is, I thirst. And that came from John 19, verse 28 through 29. Let's read that together. Again, it's John 19, 28 through 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it up to his mouth. Hey there, listeners. I wonder if you've ever been thirsty. I mean really thirsty. Mm. You know, Dad, I can think about, I think the, the most thirsty I've ever been probably was when we were in Nicaragua um, on our mission trip. Uh, that was back in 2013, building an orphanage there in El Crucero. And um, you remember how hot it was out there uh, on those days that we were working and the wind was blowing and dust was everywhere. And I just remember uh, as we were out there working, 
how thirsty you would get because of the sun and wind and the dust and everything like that. That's that's about as thirsty as I ever remember being and how my tongue would stick to my mouth and and it was almost like your mouth was on fire. Mm-hmm. But you know, no thirst can compare to the thirst of crucifixion. For crucifixion is a long drawn out process that leads to dehydration. Mm-hmm. And just think about what the Lord had been through, right? That where this statement was said, as you said, we think in secession there at the very end after being on the cross mm-hmm. for six hours. Mm-hmm. But think about what he'd been through just in the last 24 hours. He had spent the night in a dungeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, no doubtably he was not given food or water there in the dungeon. And then as soon as daybreak came, he was beaten with the, the cat of nine tails and, and had his, his body uh, just ripped apart. Mm-hmm. And the fluids and blood from his body would have been drained as they weep from the wounds on his back. His beard was plucked from his face, and a crown of thorn was pushed down into his head. And then after all this, he was forced to carry a heavy cross up the road. Such suffering would drain the fluids from the body. Now at this point, again, he's been hanging on the cross for six hours and without anything to drink, any moisture. And in suffering, he cries out, I thirst. It's hard to envision, Dad. I just have a hard time sitting there thinking about the Creator who made water, mm-hmm. who made the rivers, the oceans, who made it rain. Right. Is there on the cross saying, I thirst. It's hard to believe. Yet he refused to create any water while he was on the cross. I thirst is such a simple statement, but I think it has such a lot of meaning that we need to unpack. There was three things that, that I took from this statement as I, I studied and, and, and thought about I thirst and Jesus saying that on the cross. The first thing that came to my mind, Dad, is that his thirst proves that he was indeed man. Mm-hmm. You see, Jesus was fully God mm-hmm. and he was fully man at right. the same time. As man, he experienced life just the way that we do. He became tired. Mm-hmm. He became hungry. Mm-hmm. And yes, he became thirsty. Right. And at this moment, when he was under extreme pressure and gone through so much torture, he thirsted. He had a thirst. He needed something to drink. You know, he came to live as a man that we might have an example of what pure and holy living is and to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Jesus was God, but he was also man. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing that we can see when we see I thirst. The second thing that I see when uh, we, we see that the term I thirst is that his thirst fulfilled prophecy. If we look back at the scripture, it says, after Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished and that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Mm-hmm. Uh, centuries earlier, David had written, they put gall in my food and they gave me vinegar for thirst. That's Psalm 69, uh, 21. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, as God, knew every prophecy that pointed to him in this moment. And he was meticulous. Even as his life ebbed away, he made sure that every single one of those prophecies were fulfilled. Why did he do that? Well, I'm convinced, Dad, that he did it because of you and me. Mm -hmm. He knew that uh, there were going to be generations that would come after this and that they would be longing and wanting to know who is the Messiah, where is he, when is he coming. Mm -hmm. And as we study the scriptures, the scriptures all pointed to to one person. Mm -hmm. It pointed to that one event. Right. And he wanted to make sure that every single prophecy was fulfilled so that people would know who he is. Right. So that they would understand that he is the true Messiah. And so even now, again, 2,000 years later, we read these scriptures, and as we read the Old Testament, we see it pointing to him. And then as we read the New Testament, we see him fulfilling uh, prophecy by prophecy, everything, so that we can identify Jesus as the one and true Messiah. Mm -hmm. And Dad, the third thing that I saw here is that his thirst expressed his yearning for fellowship with the Father. Mm Mm-hmm. 
You know, Jesus had spent three hours of horrid separation from his father. You just talked about that. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you separated or or forsaken me? He had been separate from his father. As the world turned back, God turned his face on the sin that was placed on his son. I believe Jesus longed to be back in relationship with his father. He wanted to be in his presence. Mm -hmm. Just as David wrote, as a deer pants for uh, the streams of water, my soul pants for you, O God. Jesus' thirst was for his Father's presence. And I have to think that maybe his thirst for his Father's presence maybe superseded that of his physical thirst for water. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be back in, into his Father's presence. As I think about that thirst, Dad, I'm reminded that that same thirst that Jesus had there on the cross as he, he thirsted for a relationship with his Father, God puts that same thirst in man when he created us. Mm-hmm. We all have it. It's a thirst for him. It's a thirst for his presence, his love. This thirst is intended to draw us toward the things of God. Mm-hmm. But the problem is Satan knows about this thirst too. And he goes around telling everyone how to quench that thirst. Mm-hmm. For some, he says, hey, try this alcohol. It'll quench your thirst. For others, he says, hey, try some of the sex. It will quench that thirst for you. Mm-hmm. Money, power, medications, pleasures, he uses them all. But as many of you know, many of us know, even myself know, those things never quench thir- the thirst. They only leave us thirsty, wanting more. Mm-hmm. It never fulfills it because the only thing that you can really fulfill that thirst with is is the things of God, eternity. That's the only thing that will quench that thirst is being mm-hmm. in presence of God with the living water that he provides. So I see those three things when he says, I thirst. I saw that it was, again, proving that he was fully God and fully man. I see that it was fulfilling prophecies, and then it was also a yearning uh, and a thirst for the presence of his Father. So that's mm-hmm. what I got out of out of the fifth saying. Can you share the, the sixth saying with sure, us? Sure, sure. Well, the sixth saying, Jesus said, he said, it is finished. It is finished. Now, Jesus meant several things when he said it is finished. It meant that he had fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies concerning him. It meant that all the types and shadows in the Old Testament concerning him had been fulfilled in him. It meant his suffering was over, and it meant that the great work of redemption was completed. Now, this was really uh, a word of victory when He said, it is finished. It is finished. I want to point out just three of those things that relate to it is finished. The first thing that he meant was that all the types or shadows had been fulfilled in him. When God killed the animals to clothe Adam and Eve in Eden after they sinned, it was a case of one animal for one individual, one animal for Adam and one animal for Eve. When God gave the instructions for the Passover, it was one lamb for one Jewish family. When God gave Moses instructions for the work of the high priest on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice was one animal for one nation. So think about it. One animal for one individual. One lamb for one family. One animal for one nation. And in Jesus, we have one lamb for the world. The second thing that Jesus meant when he said, it is finished, was that his suffering was over. Now, Matt just shared about the immense suffering that our Savior went through. Jesus 
died on the cross, as you know, to pay the penalty for our sins. We deserve to suffer for our sins. We deserve to die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but Jesus stepped in the way and took the punishment for our sins. He died in our place. The wrath of God that is reserved for sinners fell on Jesus. Now, let's just take another moment to review the shame and the pain that Jesus went through on the cross. According to the Bible, before Jesus was nailed to the cross, he was scourged or beaten with a whip. Research into the Roman method of crucifixion indicates that it was a common practice to beat those that were to be crucified before crucifying them. The whip the Romans used to beat criminals was a whip of leather that had pieces of bone and metal tied in it at certain intervals. Frequently, the scourging would kill the person That was to be executed. The leather whip used by the soldiers would cut the back of the person being scourged into ribbons, sometimes knocking out the person's eyes and teeth. Sometimes the beating would cause the victim's bowels to fall out. Jesus experienced such a beating before he was ever nailed to the cross. His back was shredded by the cruel soldier's whip. Following the beating, the soldiers would... would make the person that was to be crucified carry the cross beam to the crucifixion site. Usually, the upright beam was already in place. The victim would walk in the center of four soldiers. Often after being beaten, those that were to be crucified would stumble and fall under the weight of the cross beam. And that happened to Jesus. In Warrenburg, Missouri, a church enlisted a young man who was not a Christian to play the role of Jesus in a musical drama. The young man's role was to carry a heavy wooden cross on his shoulder and kneel while the choir sang an anthem. During the rehearsal, the choir was having trouble with the music that accompanied a particular scene. So the choir director had them go over the scene several times. The young man playing the role of Jesus had to kneel with the cross on on his shoulder for several minutes. He started having muscle spasms, and the choir director gave him a heavy shoulder pad to ease the pressure of the cross. The next night, after the performance of the drama, the young man sought out the pastor and asked to talk with him about becoming a Christian. He said while he was kneeling under the weight of the cross, he began to understand the suffering Jesus had endured for him. Folks, Jesus suffered. He suffered before he even got to the place of crucifixion. And after Jesus arrived at Calvary, the Roman soldiers, as was their custom, stripped Jesus of his clothes. And then they nailed Jesus to the cross. The feet and the hands of our precious Savior were nailed to a cross. After nailing those to be executed on a cross, the soldiers would stand back and keep guard as they watched the slow and painful death of those that had been crucified. Generally, death by crucifixion would take several hours to several days, during which time the victims of crucifixion would be helpless against the weather, against insects which would bite them and crawl over their wounds. Hanging suspended between heaven and earth, every rib of the person being crucified would become visible in the effort to breathe. Blood would gather into the abdominal cavity, causing swelling and great pain. And dehydration would set in, causing, as you said, Matt, intense thirst. Sometimes persons that were being crucified as a result of the sheer pain they were going through, along with the fever brought on by tetanus and gangrene, would go mad before death 
mercifully set them free from their agony. Jesus suffered terribly on the cross, but added to all the physical suffering, Jesus suffered spiritually. As we talked about, he was separated from the heavenly father. And of course, people mocked him and ridiculed him as he was hanging on that cross. After six hours of suffering on the cross, which included hours in which he was separated from the Father. Jesus finally paid for our sins. With death moments away, Jesus, in a shout of victory, said, It is finished, meaning my suffering for the sins of the world is over. The sin debt is paid. The final thing Jesus meant when he said that is the great work of redemption was completed. The Greek word for finish is uh, teleo. It is used often in the New Testament. Sometimes it is translated as paid, performed, accomplished, or made an end of. Putting it all together as a result of Calvary. What was made an end of? The answer is our sins and guilt. What was paid? The price of our redemption. What was performed? The utmost requirements of the law. What was accomplished? The work the Father sent him to do. What was finished, the making of atonement. All that a holy God requires has been done. Nothing is left for the sinner to add. No works for us are demanded as the price of our salvation. All that is necessary for the sinner is to rest now by faith in what Jesus Christ did. Romans 6.23 says, The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's exactly right. Well, Dad, uh, we'll move on to saying number seven, and this is the final thing, and it's, uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and our reference text here is Luke 23, verse 46, and let's read that together. It says, and when Jesus had cried out aloud in a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. You know, Jesus was in full control of his spirit until he voluntarily gave it up to the Father. Mm -hmm. You know, Dad, many people like to say that the Romans, they murdered Jesus. Uh, People like to say that the the Jewish people uh, murdered Jesus and that Jesus is is a martyr. And, and, And maybe that's some semantics, but I like to maintain that Jesus wasn't murdered. Right. Jesus wasn't killed. Uh, Jesus laid down his life. That's he gave right. it. He uh, gave it. He gave it as a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. He was in complete control. We all know that at any point in time, he could have said enough is enough. He could have called 10,000 angels to come to his rescue and to annihilate everyone there right. and said, it's over. I'm done. This is no more. Uh, but he was uh, loving. He loved us so much that he continued all the way to the end. And then he laid down his life for us. Right. And he was... He was faithful to the Father. This was the Father's will, uh, is that this would happen, and so he was faithful to the Father's will. You know, interestingly, none of the New Testament writers are content with saying that Jesus died. They all say that his spirit went into the hands of the Father, just as he said. They want us to understand that his death was not the end, but it was the beginning of a new relationship. Right. And I think that's a valuable lesson for all of us who are saved to to think about and to learn that one day we're going to walk through that valley of death. We're going to come to that final hour where we're going to draw our last breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not the end for those who of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and have been saved. For when we draw our last breath on this earth, uh, that's just the beginning of eternity. It's the beginning of a new relationship right. with God. 
You know, Dad, as uh, we get ready to wrap up this episode, um, I, you ran across a, a story here and sent it to me, and uh, I think it's just uh, it, it's a great, great way to wrap up our our two part series here. And so I'm going to share it with our listeners. Um, it is a little bit long, but um, I think it it puts us right where we need to be in terms of ending uh, this series. So I'm going to read it to um, everyone. It says, "There was a certain professor." Of religion, who was named Dr. Christensen, who taught at a small college in the western United States. Dr. Christensen taught a required survey course in Christianity at this particular institution. Every student was required to take this course as a freshman a year, regardless of their major. Although Dr. Christensen tried so hard to communicate the essence of the gospel in his class, he found that most of his students looked upon the course as something uh, that was required and, and just approached it with begrudgery. Despite his best efforts, most students refused to take Christianity seriously. This year, Dr. Christensen had a special student named Steve. Steve was the only freshman uh, in the class, but was studying with the intent of going to, into uh, seminary training to go into the ministry. Steve was popular. He was liked by everyone. And he was an imposing physical specimen because, see, he was the starting center for the, the football team. And he was the, the best student in the professor's class. One day after class, Dr. Christen, uh, Christensen said, Stephen, can I, can I talk to you for just a few minutes after class? And he, he said, yes, I'll, I'll be glad to stay. Dr. Christensen asked, how many push-ups can you do? Steve said, I can do 200. I do them every night. 200. That's pretty good, Steve, said Dr. Christensen. Do you think you could do 300? Steve replied, I don't know. I've never tried to do 300 at one time. Well, do you think you could do it? Asked again, Dr. Christensen. Well, I can try, said Steve. Can you do 300 in sets of 10? I have a class project in mind, and I need you to do about 300 push-ups in sets of 10 for this to work. Can you do it? I really need you to tell me that you can, said the professor. Steve said, well, I think I can. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can do it. Dr. Christensen said, good, I need you to do this on Friday. Let's, uh, let me explain what I have in mind. Friday came and Stephen got to class early and sat in the front of the classroom. And when the class started, the professor pulled out a box of donuts. And these were not just your normal donuts. These were those big fancy donuts that were decorated with sprinkles and frosting and, and filled with cream. Everyone was pretty excited um, as it was Friday. It was the last class of the day and they were going to get an early start to the weekend with a party in Dr. Christensen's class. Dr. Christensen went to the first girl in the front row and asked, Cynthia, do you want to have one of these donuts? Cynthia said, yes. Dr. Christensen then turned to Steve and, and asked, Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so Cynthia can have a donut? Sure. Steve jumped down from his desk and did a quick 10 set of push-ups. Then Steve sat down again in his desk. Dr. Christensen put the donut on Cynthia's desk. Dr. Christensen then went to Joe, the next person, and asked, Joe, do you want a donut? Joe said, yes. Dr. Christensen asked Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so that Joe can have a donut? Steve did 10 push-ups, and Joe got a donut. And so it went down the first aisle. Steve did 10 push-ups for every person before they got their donut, and down the second aisle till Dr. Christensen came to Scott. Now, Scott was on the basketball team, and he was in good condition, just as, as Steve was. 
and he was very popular and never lacking for female companionship. When the professor asked Scott, do you want a donut? Scott's reply was, well, can I do my own push-ups? Dr. Christensen said, no, Steve has to do them. Then Scott said, well, I don't want one then. Dr. Christensen shrugged his his shoulders and turned to Steve and and asked and said, Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so that Scott can have a donut he doesn't want? With perfect obedience, Steve started to do 10 push-ups. Scott said, hey, I said I didn't want one. Dr. Christensen said, look, this is my classroom, my class, my desk. These are my donuts. Just leave it on the desk if you don't want it. And he put the donut on Scott's desk. By this time, Steve had begun to slow down a little bit in his push-ups. He, he just stayed on the floor because it was too much effort to get back and, and, and forth between his desk in between sets. You could start to see a little perspiration coming out around his brow. Dr. Christensen started down the third row. Now students were beginning to get a little angry. Dr. Christensen asked Jenny, Jenny, do you want a donut? Sternly, Jenny said no. Then Dr. Christensen asked Steve, Steve, would you do 10 more push-ups so that Jenny can have a donut that she doesn't want? Steve did 10, and Jenny got a donut. By now, a growing sense of unease filled the room. The students were beginning to say no, and there were all these uneaten donuts on the desk. Steve also had to really put forth a lot of extra effort to get these push-ups done for each donut. There began to be a small pool of sweat on the floor beneath his face, and his arms and his brow began to get red as uh, the physical effort was involved. Dr. Christensen started down the fourth row during his class. However, some of the students from another class had wandered in and began to set on the steps along the radiators that ran down the side of the classroom. When the professor realized this, he started to worry if Steve would be able to make it. Dr. Christensen went on to the next person and and the next and the next. Then near the end of the room, Steve was really having a rough time. He was taking a lot more time to complete each set. A few moments later, Jason, a recent transfer student, came to the room and was about to come in when all the students yelled in one voice, No, don't come in. Stay out. Jason didn't know what was going on. Steve picked up his head and said, no, let him come in. Professor Christensen said, you realize that if Jason comes in, you'll have to do 10 push-ups for him? Steve said, yes, let him come in. Give him a donut. Dr. Christensen said, okay, Steve, I'll let you get Jason's out of the way now. Jason, do you want a donut? Jason, new to the room, hardly knew what was going on. So he said, yes, yeah, give me a donut. Steve, will you do 10 push-ups so Jason can have a donut? Steve did 10 push-ups very slowly and with great effort. Jason, bewildered, was handed a donut and sat down. Dr. Christensen finished the fourth row and started with those visitors seated near the heaters. Steve's arms were now shaking with each push-up in a struggling effort to lift himself against the force of gravity. Sweat was profusely dropping from his face, and by this time, there was no sound except heavy breathing. There was a lot, not a dry eye in the room. The very last two students in the room were two young women, both cheerleaders, very popular. Dr. Christensen went to Linda, the second to the last, and asked, Linda, do you want a donut? Linda said very sadly, no, no thank you. Professor Christensen quietly asked Steve, Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so that Linda 
can have a donut that she doesn't want. Grunting with effort, Steve did 10 very slow push-ups for Linda. Then Dr. Christensen turned to the last girl, Susan. Susan, do you want a donut? Susan, with tears flowing down her face, began to cry. Dr. Christensen, why can't I help him? Dr. Christensen, with tears in his own eyes, said, No, Steve has to do it alone. I have given him this task, and he is in charge of seeing that everyone has an opportunity for a donut, whether they want it or not. When I decided to have a party on the last day of class, I looked at my grade book. Steve was the only student who had a perfect grade. Everyone else had failed the test, skipped class, and offered me inferior work. Steve told me that when players mess up on the football field uh, at practice, that he must do push-ups. I told Steve that none of you could come to my party unless he paid the price by doing your push-ups. He and I made a deal for your sake. Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so that Susan can have a donut? As Steve very slowly finished his last push-up, with the understanding that uh, he had accomplished all that was required of him. Having done, at this point, 350 push-ups, his arms buckled beneath him, and he fell to the floor. Dr. Christensen turned to the room and, and said, And so it was, our Savior Jesus Christ on the cross, pled to the Father, into, my, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And with the understanding that he had done everything that was required of him, he yielded up his life. And like some of those in this room, many of us leave the gift on the desk uneaten. Two students help Steve off the floor to, to his seat, physically exhausted, but uh, wearing a thin smile. Well done, good and faithful servant, said Professor, adding, not all sermons are preached in words. Turning to his class, the professor said, my wish is that you might understand and fully comprehend all the riches of grace and mercy that have been given to you through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for us all, now and forever. Whether or not you choose to accept his gift to us, the price has been paid. Wouldn't you be foolish and ungrateful to leave it laying on the desk? You know, Dad, that was a, a great story. Yeah. And uh, just as Dr. Christensen said, I think that same uh, kind of desire or wish is the same wish I, I have for our podcast audience. I wish that everyone who is listening to our voices, who have mm-hmm. heard this episode and these two episodes, I wish they could fully understand, fully comprehend all the riches of grace and mercy that have been given to them through the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. That's right. He's given it to them freely. It's a free gift. It's sitting there. The price has been paid. Uh-huh. It's now up to each and every one of us to make the decision. Are we going to accept the gift? What's been done for us? Are we going to uh, take it in gratitude and, and, and move forward? Or are we going to just leave it there, ungrateful, and let it sit on the desk? That's right. That's right. Dad, will you pray us out of here? Sure. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for giving Matt and I this opportunity to Uh, share with our podcast audience the seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross. Lord, I hope everyone listening thoroughly understands what Jesus did for them and how he died in their place. He took their punishment, the penalty for their sin. He paid it in full. 
And Lord God, we thank you that this coming Sunday, we're going to remember the fact that after he died and his body was taken down and buried, three days later, he came back to life to prove that he was who he said he was, the almighty son of God who was sent to save. He's alive today to rescue us, Lord, from our to rescue us and uh, to take us to heaven when we die. Father in heaven, I pray for those that haven't received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that God, they wouldn't leave it on the table, what Jesus did for them. They'd respond. They'd respond in repentance and ask you to forgive them of their sin and turn away from their sin out of gratitude for what Jesus did. Commit their life to living for Jesus and serve him each and every day and live for him and ask Jesus to to live in their hearts and change them, oh God. That's what Jesus came to do. Uh, to forgive them, to change them, and take them to heaven. And I pray, Lord God, that they'll pray out to God today, those that are lost, and, and accept His Son, accept your Son as Lord and Savior. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, and we love you. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonfire Podcast. We encourage you to subscribe wherever you stream your podcast content. Also, be sure to rate us on iTunes and Facebook so that others will know about the podcast. If you have a question that you'd like to see us address on an episode, feel free to email us at bonefireministries at gmail.com.